show. Thanks for listening again, or if you're listening for the first time, thank you for checking out the show at the podcast here. Our goal is to help you navigate faith in the modern world, and what we're talking about today is an important discussion. How do we navigate faith in the current political situation that many of us in the West, specifically in America, find ourselves in? Uh, The guest for the day is John Ward. He's talking about his book, Testimony. Uh, John is the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics for two decades, uh, including being a White House correspondent, doing all the stuff from traveling uh, abroad on Air Force One, and as a national affairs correspondent, writing about two presidential campaigns. I typically don't have a ton of news people on the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for like all the times I get pitched them and all that, but for the most part, I, I find myself just... I just feel too uncomfortable because I feel like it's either, hey, I'm having to be overly critical of one side or I'm having to feel like I am, you know, in cahoots with another. It just seems like really uncomfortable for me. But this one felt different. I felt like this is more his story in this world. And I think that's an important conversation for everyone because I think we're all having to figure out how do we navigate? What does it mean to be people of faith in... Uh, this world. Okay, so before we get uh, to that podcast with John, let me tell you about uh, one of my favorite events every year, and that is Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Now, Harbor is a flagship event for the Office of Church Relationships at Pepperdine University. It's an annual four-day conference on the beautiful campus in Malibu of Pepperdine, and it brings together Christians from across the nation and around the world with education, fellowship, worship, and rejuvenation. And it's got some amazing speakers. Uh, Bob Goff will be there, Suzanne Stabile, uh, Esau McCauley, uh, Richard Beck, um, a lot of other friends from the podcast will be there, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing every bit of what they have to say, and it's just a great time to be there. So uh, if you can make it May 2nd through May 5th, uh, please do so. I'd love to see you out there, and you know we've done a lot of great podcasts from out there. Uh, many of you remember the Rain Wilson podcast. Uh, that, that was there. That was at Pepperdine, and uh, who knows? There might be some more great ones, but uh, what I do know for sure is me and Suzanne Stabile will be there, and a lot of you remember the conversations last year that we did with Kristen Cobez-Dumay from out there, so it's it's a lot of good stuff, and it'll be great this year, so hope to see you then May 2nd through May 5th, Harper the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, and now, without further ado, John Ward on the podcast, joining us from the D.C. area, and um, let's go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor today to be joined from the D.C. area by John Ward. Welcome to the show, sir. Luke, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, uh, I'm honored to talk to you. And like you, you are like a legitimate media person, which is not what I am. I just have done this long enough that I, I fake it. But you are like you actually work for Yahoo and like you're like a legitimate person. Is it peculiar being interviewed by someone who just has been faking it until he makes it for 10 years? Uh, if we were, if you were asking me questions and 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 asking me to opine on uh, church matters, ecclesiology or theology, that would be weird. But uh-huh. uh, I think we're going to talk about stuff that we both have personal experience about. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I wrote a book that's large part memoir, so that's. Yeah. You know, that's fair game for pretty much anybody. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, the title of the book is Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation uh, Testimony. And so, wait, Testimony is the title. Inside the, that's the subtitle, right? I, 
I don't know if I can read correctly. Anymore. Testimony is the is the <laughs> testimony is the 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 title, and the other thing is the subtitle. Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But let me read that subtitle again. Inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation. Okay, so I'm talking to a buddy of mine who's uh, over at our, my house um, this last week, and I, because of podcasts, I just have stacks of books that show up, and my wife absolutely hates it. Um, she's just like, I'm just going to throw your books away. Like once she said, look, I just threw all the books away that you had on the counter. And I was like, no, 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 I need those. And then like I snuck into the back of a car and she had them there. She was just faking me out. But I'm very fortunate. I'm not like, you know, trying to like complain about that, but it's nice to get free books. But one of the questions he asked me as he's looking at a stack of books is how many books in which someone says, this is what's wrong with the church and the evangelical movement. And like how many of those books come out? And I said, well, you know, like there, there's a few of them because it's a, a subject matter. I think that we're all realizing that we've come from something, many of us who have connections to the evangelical movement, um, that has had some complicated uh, effects on all of us. And so you're writing this book. It is your story. It is how you've traversed a a world that many people have a lot of commonality with. As as you're writing a story that, you know, I look at your foreword and uh, one of the endorsements, Kirsten Cobes-Dumay, a friend of the show, he's been on a handful of times. Uh, Obviously, she's written a lot about this. You have Jamar Tisby, who's also been on the show, talking about some of these kind of things. Why do you think, here's the question, why do you think so many people are are talking about this subject right now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely something going on, Mm -hmm. right? where a lot of people, as you said, are grappling with some, some similar issues and it's, and it's going over, over a period of time and it has some definite contours. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure anybody's quite got their hands around why that is, but if I had to guess, a lot of it has to have to do with what's happened politically over yeah. the last decade. Um, I do think that politics has been a forcing mechanism, Um, but it's, you know, I think it would be too simple to boil it down to one particular figure, you know, such as Donald Trump. I think um, that there are elements of American political culture that have come to a head, hyperpolarization, growing secularization, Mm -hmm. some of these larger forces um, are then ca- causing a counter reaction mm-hmm. by religious conservatives, all of which is forcing people who are, I think, generally our age in their forties or younger, mm-hmm. to to sort of reassess some of the conclusions we had drawn about um, what all this means and and what it means to live a faithful Christian life. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems that we can't talk about Christianity in twenty twenty three without talking about its intersection with politics. It's right. almost as if there's been like this this merger where uh, y- you you can't really do one without the other. I find that in a in a local way where it's to the point where I was trying to make a comparison between Jesus's triumphal entry and trying to pull out the political not even undertones the the political narrative that that would have been two thousand years ago, and I compared it to a presidential inauguration, which, you know, from my biblical training, I feel like that's a fair comp. It's not my idea, but I, I think it's there. And so I used the last one that was without social distancing, which would have been Trump's inauguration. And someone came up to me afterwards, like, you know, I couldn't listen to the rest of the sermon because you can, you had a tangential reference to a president of the United States. And you go, like, I get where you're coming from. I get where you're, like, how you feel about things. But it's almost as if, like, there's no way for us to, like separate these two. And so 
one of my concern, or I guess one of my questions is like, so your title, your official title is like chief national correspondent for Yahoo. Is that, is that right? Is that close? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're not talking about faith on a day-to-day basis for Yahoo. I, f- I feel like that's probably not what they're wanting you to do. Um, but h- how often as someone who's coming and writing as a political writer, do you find faith coming into your world in the same way that in my world of faith, I'm seeing politics mm-hmm. all the time coming mm-hmm. in. How do you see it the opposite direction? I really noticed this start to come into my work in the 2016 campaign in a way I hadn't before. Hmm. Um, and part of that was I was writing about uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz may have been one of the first people to run for president on a really kind of explicitly religious um, type of platform. He kicked his his campaign off at Liberty University, and I was I was there hmm. when he did that. Um, and then you had. Uh, Donald Trump come in and uh, again at Liberty University he made a speech where he talked about protecting Christianity and so a lot of these religious themes were infused into the campaign in a way that was more than just sort of uh, platitudes I think a lot of religious or Republican candidates um, had talked about religion in more general terms in the past in presidential elections and so it just became more explicit in the 2016 campaign um and there was a lot that went into that um but i think what drove some of the demand for it from the conservative side was this sense of uh being beleaguered or or a grow you know a sense of growing uh being a minority uh Mm. in the culture um so i i do think that there was that was driving some of the increased talk of, you know, not just religion and politics, but a sense of, I will protect, uh, you know, your group. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 2016, obviously, uh, George W. Bush was president for a while and he's been, um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that, like, let me say this as someone who has a friend who is on staff at a church that he has attended since he's got out of office and the regularity with which he is seen as a part of this church and participating in the life of the church. Um, it would be difficult to say that he is not a Christian person who served as a president of the United States, but he's not at, in office, but you think it's more so when you have Rubio, uh, when you have Cruz, when you have Trump, um, it's curious that, that Liberty university comes up twice uh, in those names, how do you, hmm, how do you see Liberty as a player in this? Do you think that they just happen to be in the right place at the right time? Or do you feel like they're part of the group that's pushing to, to bring those two things together more? I mean, for a long time, the moral majority, which was Falwell's, you know, creation, Falwell senior, um, and the Christian coalition, Ralph Reed, um, Gary Bauer, this is in the 1990s, um, and on into the George W. Bush administration, there was definitely a marriage of conservative Republican politics and conservative, largely white um, religious institutions and movements. But there wasn't a lot of talk of Christianity as a um, voting block or a constituency. It was discussed But the candidates themselves, I don't think I ever heard a candidate until Trump in 2016 say, I'm going to protect Christianity, almost talking about uh, conservative Christians in a way that you see people refer to Protestants and Catholics 
in Ireland Mm -hmm. where there's a sectarian tribal, almost ethnic conception Mm -hmm. of what it means to be a Protestant or a Catholic. And that was the way it began to be talked about in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, a lot of that was driven by a sense of feeling like we're now increasingly a minority and there's hostility against us and we need somebody with political power to protect us from our enemies. That was, that was a somewhat new dynamic in, in 2016. Hmm. You and I both, um, I think you were born 1977. Uh, I was born yeah. four years later, 1981. My mom's from the DC area. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia and we both grew up in families in which, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, in your book, your, your father uh, being against abortion and political activity connected to that issue. That was also part of my childhood as well. And the amount of fear that I had, I think when Clinton won, I, I just assumed that when Clinton won, all churches were shutting down. Now, again, like I'm a, I'm a child, mm-hmm. I'm an adolescent at the time, but mm-hmm. somehow I got to the point where I believed that um, if we have one of those terrible Democrats in office, like churches were going to be shut down, you know, they're coming with the police, uh, we can't have a Bible. And, and a lot of that is just my childhood mm. mind. But there, there's also, one of the things you talk about in the book is that like there was fear-based politics that, that did exist there um, along. Do you feel like, in some ways, like those were some of the seeds that have been sowed for a, a long time and they've kind of come to harvest now? Yeah, no, I think that's that's where I was headed in my in my response to what you were saying mm-hmm. about your childhood fears before you even suggested it. Um, some of your listeners will be familiar with the left behind yeah. books and movies. Mm-hmm. And what I I tell the story in the book of the the predecessor to that, which was uh, a, a pair of movies called a thief in the night, mm-hmm. um, followed up by, uh, a successor film to that, which I can't remember the name of, but these were, I think a thief in the night was made in 1972 and it's the same storyline. There's the rapture. And then the, those, the people who are left behind have to endure the tribulation. And, um, the one world government, is run by the Antichrist and is represented by United United Nations soldiers in blue helmets who then execute people who won't take the mark of the beast in a guillotine. So there, people who aren't familiar with that might think that I'm just talking about something that's crazy and it's ludicrous, but this is a pretty familiar story that seeped into the imagination of millions of evangelicals through the movies I saw through the left behind books and movies um, through Hal Lindsey's book in the 1970s called the late great planet earth. Um, And, and that kind of story of persecution and martyrdom um, has been in the evangelical sort of bloodstream for a very, very long time. And, and even now you have people who, you know, I would call crisis merchants um, or conflict entrepreneurs who, take what might be real antagonism or antipathy for religious conservatives and weaponize it, exaggerate it, use it to build their career in media or in politics. And um, so that that's not unique necessarily 
to conservative religious folks. There are crisis entrepreneurs in all aspects of life. But when you're doing it in this conservative religious space, it's tapping into something that's been there for a while, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that you use the word exaggerate, because exaggerate uh, assumes that something does ex- it could exist, but the sure. degree to which we feel or communicate that its existence is, is up for debate. I don't right. know if you saw Rain Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute in The Office, he put a tweet out about how something to the extent of, like, in Hollywood, if you see a Christian or someone reading the Bible you almost can guarantee that that's going to be a bad person. That's going to be a villain. Now, Rain Wilson is not a Christian. He's from the Baha'i faith and uh, love the guy, big, big fan of his work and all that. Um, but he, he puts that, that tweet out and uh, I saw Fox News ran with it and took it a bunch of different directions, which I'm not really sure if Rain assumed that's kind of where he wanted to go. But nevertheless, like his point was like fair. Like if you go and, and look on Hollywood and try to find, mm-hmm. you know, a Bible believing Christian, a preacher, someone like that, like you're not going to get a hero of the story for the most part. And so when people talk about, well, you're, you know, uh, there, there's things that you look at and go, well, that, that doesn't seem like it's very hospitable for people who have certain religious convictions as portrayed in movies and on TV. And the degree to which that's accurate about all of life, I think that's a discussion. But um, I, I think some conservatives go like, this really does exist, though. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, to me, I've always been of the mind that uh, I'm not so bothered if my group is not represented. What bothers me in art is, is if... Um, certain principles or, or, or ways of living are mocked. And, and, and if those ways of living, I think, are like healthy, but they're being cast as stupid or outmoded, whether or not that person's a Christian or not, that would be like a form of art that I would feel like, oh, mm-hmm. I wish that wasn't existing. But I just think if you take it personally, um, to me, that's a little like parochial or something. It's like... Uh, it just doesn't bother me. I, but I, I'm not willing to like die on that hill. If people want to see better representations of conservative Christians in art, I'm all for that. I just don't, I don't know if I even agree that it's like uniform in in art and culture, but that said, it's not like I'm watching a lot of films these days, raising five kids. We usually have time for about like one hour of, of screen time after yeah. the kids have gone to bed, which limits us to uh, shows like Succession or something like that. Yeah. I don't feel like there's any Bible character. Like, I don't think there's going to be any preacher in Succession. It's just a... I mean, this gets back to something that just has bothered me from an early age in Christianity. It's like, there's a very... There's, there, uh, I don't want to fall into the trap of like just being critical, but I did sense from a very young age that there was a lack of sophistication in the way that... Uh, evangelicals that I was around thought about, talked about and critiqued art and culture. And it was very sort of uh, reactionary. And ultimately I think it, it led to a poverty of, of uh, imagination, a poverty of the intellect where we just couldn't um, appreciate a lot of things that were out there because we're looking through a very black and white lens at things. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I think uh, sometimes Christian art uh, targets things that are pretty straightforward, and the uh, ability to have uh, art that makes you think and to stretch you, and uh, as they say, to uh, afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted, is not something that we always make space for. Especially in some of the you know movies that are quote unquote made for and by Christians, you just go, uh, that's 
you know, seems like a pretty simplistic story. But your, your point a second ago about not taking things personally, I think that's pretty spot on. And you make this observation uh, at, towards the end, end of the book um, where you're talking about some of the ways that Christians have voted during the 2016 uh, election. But you talked about how in 2020, so four years later, many of the, you know, whatever, 81% of evangelicals who voted, and I know that's a really debatable number. Uh, you're sure. the expert, not me, on that. But he, you had this line where, um, long before 2020, they come to resent the incessant criticism and attacks on him, Trump. And then you had this mm-hmm. line, many people took them personally. Mm-hmm. Like, th- that, that word right there, like, personally, like, mm-hmm. where you take criticism of someone that you cast a vote for four years ago as it was a personal attack on you, I, I feel like you're on to something right there where we, we lack the ability to have healthy discourse where if there's a criticism of, you know, if you voted for Hillary, you voted for Trump or whoever you voted for, for Biden, um, that it becomes a personal affront on you to have discussions about that. Well, and I think this goes beyond politics to any kind of disagreement or conflict. I I haven't read most of Amanda Ripley's book, which is called High Conflict, but I know that she's getting at this dynamic of how do we de-escalate disagreement. And, And one of the things that always escalates disagreement is when our egos get involved and, and we affix our identity, our sense of being, our sense of importance, our sense of meaning to the arguments that we're engaged in. And the more we can detach those two things, our ego, our identity, our sense of meaning from the content of what we're talking about, the more we can kind of stand back, take a deep breath regulate our physical body to a place of more of being calmer and start to approach the conversation of the disagreement from a place of curiosity and learning and learning about the other person and their perspective and not being threatened. But that is so much easier said than done in large part because of the psychological effect of when our egos get involved, which then leads to our body hijacking uh, our mind. Yep. Yep. It seems that whenever we get in these uh, disagreements, this sort of discourse, that we're always picking up more than is intended for us to carry. Where we yeah. pick up like this is my responsibility to defend this or to make sure my honor yep. or their honor or it just becomes a weird conversation where it's like that's no 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 we're not discussing that we're asking you right. know what's what's the best thing for the country what's the best thing for the situation or how do we handle the situation uh, but you know, can can I just interject one thing yeah. I mean this is I've written for Christianity Today about how journalism made me a better Christian. Hmm. And this is one of the big ways it did that. It helped me to adopt a lifelong stance as a person, as a student, as a person of curiosity. My job for 20 plus years has been to ask questions of other people and ask questions of, uh, of, of topics. And, and I've been incentivized by my position in the media to not have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a passport to intellectual honesty and freedom. Yeah. And, um, and when you, when you have that incentive structure, um, and when you're, when you're encouraged to be a student and a learner, um, it's empowering, it's freeing, it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a 
lot of sense. I, I feel like the heart of what I want to do with the podcast is I, I want to have conversations with people 10 years ago. So I started this podcast before people really had podcasts a decade ago. And it's always yeah. been about like, I, I'm just curious to talk to people and ask questions. And it, I, I don't know. I feel like that just comes naturally to me. But unfortunately, I don't know if it's always natural for. Uh, I don't think it's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I'm just so amazing. The two of us, we have it all figured out. If only people could be like us, the world would be perfect, right? Um, let, let's talk about something else you and I have in common. Um, failed rap lyric quotations that go awfully. Um, okay, so you start the book telling a story. You're, you're doing a, a big um, spot on a major network, and uh, you attempt to use a line from Chance the Rapper, uh, something that I have done myself uh, to the point where I've even tried to quote the very line you've used yourself. So you go on oh, wow. and you use the line uh, where, where Chance says, don't trust in kings, trust in the kingdom. Is that something like that? That's kind of the line. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, a- you're, you're saying this, it, is it uh, MSNBC you're on? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you say the quote. Uh, morning Joe. Morning, okay. And yeah. how did the quote go over in that room? I mean, it, it kind of like a lead balloon. Um, it may have just been that it was kind of an esoteric reference. The whole idea of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man mm-hmm. probably needs more extrapolation mm-hmm. than just a real quick rap lyric. But, you know, I think anytime you do mention the kingdom of God, that is a term that can be a little fraught because people wonder, like, well, are you talking about theocracy? Like, what do you mean by that? Yep. And so, um, so there was, I, I, I felt a little discomfort in the room for sure. And I use that just to point out that I come from this world of being deep inside conservative evangelical culture and growing up in it and really being an all out devotee of, of conservative evangelical Christianity. Um, and I never felt at home, even though I was part of it there and i don't really feel at home in elite media even though i'm a part of that too so i i use the the, I, the whole idea is that i'm what mako fujimura calls a border stalker which is somebody who lives between two different worlds which yep. actually all christians are supposed to do in some ways yeah uh strangers and aliens in a foreign land i feel like there's plenty of yeah. uh that content uh now i think Mako got that from Beowulf, which Correct. Uh, I don't know if uh, all my listeners or, or actually even myself have actually finished Beowulf. But um, I, to unpack that image more, like where you're between two different worlds, where you're not here, you're not there. So you just described conservative evangelical. Both of us grew up there. Um, elite media, which is where you are right now. But neither one of those perfectly resonate with maybe the essence of who you are and how do you navigate that tension as, uh, to use Mako's term again, the body stalker, uh, border stalker, border. uh, body, body that, stalker like a, would be a little disturbing. Yeah. That's a completely um, different thing. That seems like a different monster. I mean, growing up, I had a, I experienced sort of a double alienation, um, because I was alienated from co- co- the world outside of church by mm-hmm. the virtue of being in a church that was very isolated and, and, and withdrawn. Um, and inward, mm-hmm. but I also was Ill- alienated from the church that I was in because I, ne- I just could never get fully on board with the idea of not asking the question why about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of my natural orientation. So I think the, the virtue of what Mako talks about beyond it's 
practical applicability of bringing understanding and tearing down misunderstandings is that he says that this role may have felt like a curse to you as a young person, but there's great value in living between worlds and never feeling at home. And journalism, I can tell you from long experience to really, I think, pursue journalism with integrity, you have to embrace a sense of alienation because you can't really become friends with most of the people that you interact with. You can be friendly. You can develop some friends in some places, but by and large, you have to be able to develop a rapport with people while also maintaining a certain distance and independence from them. Because otherwise you are in their pocket or not writing, you know, as truthfully as you should be. So that alienation can feel painful at times. But Mako's point is, if you feel that alienation and live that separation, it empowers you to move between different worlds and to serve as an interpreter. And that is a, to use the term again, it's a de-escalating role because the devil you don't know is the one you're really scared of. Hmm. Um, the, the unknown is the most frightening thing. And one of the things that I think a border stalker does is to go to each group and say, let's talk about your fears. Um, let's unpack, you know, how much of that is based on reality and how much of it is based on um, illusion. Yeah. I think that that concept, though, is at the heart of what it means to be, uh, I think this is Hauerwas' term, Stanley Hauerwas, um, resident aliens. That we are to have this distance from the world that we occupy. We're, we're in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus prays yeah. in John 17. And so, I, first of all, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad for you, the idea of like, professionally you feel alienated and then like religious communities especially the one you came from is like it's, that's not exactly where you feel comfortable so that's that's tough um I, as a pastor what i want for my people is to go back to what our friend chance the rapper would say is to not trust in kings but to trust in the kingdom and because of my conviction of the kingdom of god that that is where my ultimate citizenship lies then if i see the world through a conservative you know, perspective, or I see it through a progressive perspective, and I vote accordingly, or I'm, you know, in those parties, you know, according to whatever, um, that it is a secondary commitment. My first commitment is to be in the kingdom of God. And, you know, I might have a, a set of lenses that see the world through a progressive or a conservative lens, sure, but how would you encourage people? So obviously you're doing it professionally, but we want people to, to do this because of their religious conviction to be able to be that sort of border stalker, not body stalker. We don't want anyone killing people. Becoming <laughs> a, a serial killer though. You'll get on Netflix for sure with your own series. But um, what we want people to live in that tension. How would you encourage someone to do that? Um, I think it starts with the idea of politics being a necessary and good thing rather than a, um, a thing that, we try to avoid or a thing that we view as below us or dirty. Some, some Christians, I think view politics that way. Um, and I think viewing politics that way has to do with viewing, uh, thinking realistically about the whole idea of power. Um, 
you know, I think the churches that I grew up in tried to avoid the reality of power mm-hmm. and kind of cloak power differences in religious language and and justify decision making through pseudo spiritual yeah. uh, type of rhetoric. Um, but no, power is a reality. Andy Crouch, from a Christian perspective, has done good work yeah, on writing about this. Um, and politics. Everything is politics. Everything is politics. Not just electoral politics and legislative you know, coalition work in, in, in state and, and national legislatures. Everything is politics. Everything is negotiation between power centers. Um, and so I think starting with a realistic view of politics is important. And then I think the Christian lens is to be prophetic rather than captive. So I think just thinking about these things in categories that are healthy is the first step. And to be prophetic means not to be captive to a a point of view or a party or a a group. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how I would start that. Yeah. One of the things that you uh, also seem to suggest towards the end of the book is embracing becoming a minority, which seems to be completely counterintuitive to kind of the, at least the world that I was born into where we want to get power so that we can enforce morality. Now, some would say that we now will compromise our morality to hold on to power, which is a different discussion for a different time. But your lens is saying, let's see the world through something where we actually are okay with becoming a minority. Let me get, let me get the quote for this. Um, so I just stopped talking out of my head. Um, This is what you said. It would look like a Christian community that lays down its love of dominance in getting its own way and embraces the idea of becoming a minority. A person in a minority group is aware that laws and custom must protect all minority groups. That kind of thinking would make conservative white evangelicals much better neighbors. If you're trying to convince someone to move away from the attempt to gain more power, which seems to be a medium in which we can enforce things that make the world better, and instead move to a posture and a position of being a minority so that we could be a better neighbor, how would you encourage them uh, to do such a thing? I mean, it's pretty simple. When I say embrace being a minority, I'm not saying try to achieve minority status. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying embrace reality. Uh, conservative Christians are already becoming a minority. And the question is, are you going to embrace reality or not? Uh, or are you going to try to fight against reality by growing more and more anti, anti-democratic and more and more dis- disregarding of the common good? Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by that. I mean, It'd be one thing if if like conservative Christians were an overwhelming majority. I don't know that I would be saying embrace being a minority because I would say embrace something that doesn't exist. You know mm. what I'm saying? When you, when you said uh, don't be anti-democratic, can you explain what you mean by that term? Yeah. I mean, I think the clearest example of that would be people who uh, supported the efforts to overturn the election in 2020. And I could justify that based on the belief that the election was stolen. um, But that was not true. It was based on lies that that were perpetuated by a politician who capitalized on 
a linkage that had been broken between conservatives and the media. And I write about how the media has contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that whole post-election period in 2020 was the clearest example of that. I do think that both sides in American politics are increasingly uh, willing to sort of push the envelope Mm -hmm. in terms of norms and um, constitution. I think like the Supreme court and judicial arena has been a way in which you see people not necessarily being anti-democratic, but playing what one scholar calls constitutional hardball, where it just leads to a series of escalations where the outcome is just increasingly victory at any cost almost. It may be within the law, but it's breaking down and uh, reducing the amount of bipartisan compromise that happens. And it makes solving problems for regular people much harder because the more that our legislature and our politicians are polarized, the harder it is for them to actually approach real problems Mm -hmm. and to work with the other side to achieve solutions and, 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 and to make things better for the average person. So that would be my argument to the common person's Mm self-interest. How would you encourage people to not take these conversations so personally? Uh, meditation, you know, mm. the calm app. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I do think a first step is really kind of, you know, practicing regulating your body to get it yeah. to, to calm down. Cause I do think our body is just like take over mm-hmm. and our breathing and our, and our temperature hijacks uh, ourselves. But I do think it goes back to, um, you know, I wrote a couple years ago, um, pick, Pick, I had three, it was something called uh, survival rules for normal people. Mm-hmm. And I think the first rule was to adopt a 24 hour rule where anytime you hear like a rumor or read a headline, even like you say, okay, that might be true, but I'm going to make sure that I hear it from multiple credible sources until I adopt it as like something that I know to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's in part, that's because the media sometimes gets things wrong. Um, the second rule was, um, to become a student on most things and an expert on maybe one thing. And that way you're really thinking about most, like I, even myself, I think of myself as a, as an agnostic on most issues, simply because I don't know enough to have a a really strong opinion on most issues. And I'm like studying the news 24 seven. It's my job, Mm. but I have learned through my work that like the amount of complexity and nuance and context and history and detail that's involved in any issue is really, really a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the wise prudent approach to most issues is to say, I'm going to be a student. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to seek to learn. And if you want to really be like an advocate for something, pick one issue and then drill down, spend years learning about it. And then, you know, try to become uh, a, a, an ambassador or an escort or somebody who can help people understand it better. And then the third, uh, guy, you know, uh, rule that I had was make time for beauty because if all you're ever doing is thinking about politics and struggle and power, 
uh, you're going to become really unpleasant to yourself and to others, and your soul is going to shrivel. So you've got to make time for beauty and 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 for creating uh, things in life. I think being a creator is so so important. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And uh, as you're saying, like you can't be an expert on everything. Figure out one thing. Uh, you said you can't be an expert on everything. Unfortunately, um, you don't have the skills that some of the people on my Facebook feed are. They seem to be experts on everything. And so maybe I should introduce you to them and they could help you get better at your job because they, they know everything, unlike you. Um, yeah. Okay, a couple quick things. Um, I'm one of those pastors who say um, it's hard to be discipled in the way of Jesus because most of you spend more time every day being discipled by whatever talking head that you prefer to listen to on cable news or whatever your you know highly um biased social media feed is and so there's no way to be discipled by jesus when you let other people disciple you a whole lot more and i encourage people to spend less time um obviously yahoo is different that's the correct one they always get everything right but on other um you know uh, news sources. What would you say is a healthy way um, for people to engage with media and news? Um, to read as much as possible and to avoid cable news as much as possible. Um, and then not to interpret social media as uh, journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a starting place. Why, why do you say read, not watch cable news? Um because TV as a medium is inherently corrupt in, in its ability to transmit uh, information that has a lot of nuance and complexity to it. And reality is nuanced and complex. TV pushes us towards a reductionist view of reality, which is, not, which is unreality, and it increases polarization as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, because it makes us think that we know the answers to things when in fact... There's a lot we don't know usually, and uh, it increases the speed as, as well as social media with which we reach conclusions, um, and we have to slow down. We have to slow down and embrace not knowing and not having a definitive uh, answer on everything and being able to say, I don't know mm-hmm. the answer to that. That's good. So um, those, you know, slowing down, reading, uh, embracing the idea that we probably don't know everything on a particular issue. Um, and then I think, you know, just in terms of pure media literacy, I would say if you're serious about uh, being a person of integrity when it comes to information, which I think every Christian should be, um, you really need to think about what are the standards and practices and methods for reporting and information creation that exist at each outlet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, are there editors? Are there copy editors? Is there a written set of standards? Most cable uh, networks, maybe all, do not have written down standards, whereas how, most newspapers do. How would you figure out if, if they did or didn't have those standards? Um, it's pretty easy to find them online. Okay. Uh, just Google for them. Um, and, uh, I found that was really interesting a couple of years ago and I realized that about cable news and I actually don't know the answer to why they don't. Um, but the book I would recommend about like TV versus print is Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death, yeah. which was written in 1984, which I think is still highly, highly, incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Uh, can I jump to a couple of different things in your story that I want to get yeah. to before we get out here? Uh, one, you talk about a very uh, sh- shame-inducing culture, especially for young men yeah. uh, during the purity culture kind of heyday. And, you know, there is a sense of shame and that leads to depression for some. And you have this great description where... I feel like you've described something that I've tried to articulate for years where there's some, especially, um, um, I'll just leave it at that. There are some, some religious communities that like create a lot of shame and the only release you get is when you come to church and you have this sort of like euphoric worship experience and it creates mm-hmm. a sort of like shame cycle where you have to come back to church to get this release and then you build up the shame the rest of the week and you come to church and you like, and I absolutely loved the way that you described that. And I've been waiting for someone to help articulate something that I felt for a long time. Let, let me give the quote. And the only way out of this really was to battle my way to an emotional high through religious services or through prayer and devotion. I was like, you described a religious experience I felt very strongly, and I've seen many others step into that. Why do you think that experience uh, is what so many had during that sort of Christianity? Well, I think the roots of it go back to the story I tell, which is um, my parents' conversion to being born-again Christians in the 70s mm-hmm. as part of the Jesus movement. Um, and that was a movement that placed a super high premium on emotional, um, euphoric experience. Mm-hmm. And not all of that was bad, Mm-mm. and not all of my upbringing in church was bad. But what's really important, I think, to emphasize is that if emotional experience experiential religion if that becomes sort of the north star for for your faith for your judgment of whether your faith is strong or even legitimate then i think it leads to a place of not being able to live out your faith beyond the four walls of the church because the call of Christ is a call to walk the way of sacrifice Mm -hmm. and weakness and vulnerability and service. It's the way of the cross and the way of the cross is not to use Jamie Smith's term. It's not happy clappy Mm -hmm. all the time. It's not happy clappy a lot of the time. And that doesn't mean we seek out hardship and suffering. It just means we follow the call of the Holy spirit um, to be the hands and feet of Christ. And I think when the emphasis is on feeling joy or high emotion, um, we, we end up making a choice between um, sustaining that and kind of walling ourselves off from the reality of the complexity and brokenness of the world. Mm-hmm. Um or we have to leave that world as I did and find a different way. Yeah. And speaking of Jamie Smith, you talk about how, as you are rebuilding what faith looks like for you, his book, um, you are what you love, which came yeah. out what, six or seven years ago. Is that right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think he was on the show when, when that book came out. So, um, big fan of his work, but th- that was one of the resources that helped you as you're rebuilding what your faith looks like. Uh, why was yeah. his work so meaningful to you? Well, I think it goes 
I, I underline that whole book like a like a madman. But the the chapter on youth group culture um, was the one that stood out the most. He talks about the contrast. He talks about the way that youth group culture in a lot of evangelical churches is based on kind of a rah rah pep rally type of Christianity. Yeah. And again, a lot of that um, experience based charismatic tradition, um, it puts a lot of pressure on the individual to work themselves up into a certain state. Uh, I don't want to call it a frenzy, but like sometimes it's that, um, but it's very much based on outward expression. Mm -hmm. And what I think Jamie was writing about in that book is that the traditions of liturgy and, and historical, uh, uh, religion. Yeah. There's plenty of weaknesses that we can critique, but one of the things it does is that it offers the person who really is seeking out reality, who's really seeking out ultimate reality in the form of the divine, um, a way of moving into that space and, and expressing faith in a way that doesn't depend on their effort. Mm -hmm. And I can just tell you from personal experience I felt like so much of the activity and maybe this is just me, but so much of the activity in that charismatic space was ultimately a distraction. What I really wanted was the ability to, in those moments of, of corporate worship, um, what I wanted was an ability, was a, a space to, uh, seek the, seek God in a way that was authentic. Yeah. And a lot of the outward stuff was just a distraction and it becomes a marker of devotion unfortunately too many times um so there's more i could say on that but um but that would kind of be the the basic uh argument i would yeah. make on that yeah no that's great that's really good uh john this conversation has been really helpful and uh congratulations on the book uh the book is testimony when uh, when's the actual release date for the book it's, it comes out into the world on April 18th oh, okay so we're just a couple weeks away uh but uh well congratulations on the book and uh you know, best wishes on the uh, release. But John, it's been great talking with you. Nice, nice getting to meet you, Luke. I um, really enjoyed meeting you, and I wish you the best with your church and with your jujitsu. <laughs> um, and I, I really look up to all the grapplers out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just, I really am. I'm in awe. My son's a fifteen-year-old son is a wrestler. I, I'm in awe of the ferocity determination and self-discipline of that entire community so well i kudos to you for <laughs> continuing to do it i appreciate it. there's a thin line between loving grappling loving jujitsu and becoming mark driscoll circa 2000 wearing affliction t-shirts and leather jackets and so i'm trying to navigate that as faithfully as possible yeah. uh, but here's my hot take if driscoll actually trained martial arts like jujitsu maybe he would have been a little bit more mild as a man but anyway that's neither here nor there I like it neither here nor there uh john Best wishes, man. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.